Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. You know, there's so much news yesterday, we didn't have time to pack it all into two hours. Some of it has spilled over into today's news. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned briefly yesterday, Michelle, that there was the possibility today of a nationwide general strike by trade unions in France. Mm -hmm. That has happened. Yeah. And um, there was an interesting We've little... We've been too busy watching the clown show in the UK. <laughs> yes. And meanwhile, like France is about to burn down. I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but pretty people are pretty upset. The country's paralyzed yeah. today because it was the transport unions that initiated this strike. Everybody else joined in. It got so bad earlier today, excuse me, that the government um, ordered some union members to man gas stations mm-hmm. so people can go fill up their their tanks. And the unions have complained about that, saying, wait a minute, we have a, a legal right to strike here. You can't just arbitrarily force workers to go back to work in the midst of a strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to they're going to take that up in the courts. But that's what happened today. And, uh, you know, this could be a political challenge to the French government. Like you say, we've been so laser focused on on what's happening in the UK. Um, we haven't really paid much attention to uh, to France. Mm-hmm. Also, we've got some new footage from Sweden of damage to the Nord Stream pipelines. The Danish government came out today and said that their investigation shows that 50 meters of pipeline were destroyed. That is a gigantic underwater explosion 50 meters yeah that is very sophisticated sabotage um there are some initial conclusions as to what happened from germany but for whatever reason the swedes are classifying all of this and they're not going public with what they have uh, found so far in their investigation so we have at this moment like Germany and the Danish police and Sweden all coming to the same conclusion at roughly the same time and issuing their own press releases. That's exactly what's happening. We're also going to be talking today about the growing calls for an armed international intervention in Haiti, which I pray to God, if there is a God, that it doesn't happen. We'll be talking about what happens to children and pregnant women when when healthcare is mandated to turn a profit. That's also an important conversation. We'll talk about the possible outcomes in the trial of Igor Danchenko. The the jury is still out. They went back into deliberations this morning at 10 o'clock, and we don't have a verdict yet, although I can't imagine it would take terribly long. Uh, We'll talk about um, uh, whether or not, probably not, there's going to be any reckoning for Russiagate. And then if there's not, man, I don't know. Then shame on on the system we've given our. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. Why Why hasn't Christopher Steele been charged with any crime? I don't, I don't get that at all. I mean, I, I guess I, I have no idea. I would think that it has to do with the language in the dossier where he just says, here's, here's a bunch of stuff people said to me, which is not exactly a lie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like everyone is lying in exactly the right way to be able to wiggle out of scrutiny. And everybody who, again, like they all... <laughs> There was an obligation by the people who saw this material to treat it with the skepticism that it so obviously warranted. That's right. And at every step of the way, uh, they failed to do that, whether it was FBI or or the media. Yeah. 
failed to do that or declined to do that for their, you know, whatever other motivation was, was That's pushing. Right. That is right. We're also going to talk about dark horse contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination that is based on a, a Washington Post um, list from Sunday, from Saturday. This is something they do every other Saturday where they list the 10 likeliest people to be the Democratic nominee for president. They also do the Republicans. Um, and uh, and we'll ask when Joseph or however you say his name. I never saw the name Joseph or, or Josep or Josep. It's a Spanish name, but he doesn't have. I mean, his last name's not Spanish. It's Burrell. Um, how this guy got so racist. <laughs> I mean, I never heard of the guy until a week ago. And I now heard he's of him. Just he's been around. He's been a European politician for a while. Time. But yeah, this whole uh, Europe is a garden and we got to wow. keep out the jungle. It was pretty, I, pretty I nasty. I can't wait to read the quote because yeah. it's so offensive. Mm-hmm. And um, and to start, there's some exciting news from Stephen Donziger. Yeah, it looks like Stephen Donziger, and we are going to talk about this more tomorrow, but it looks like uh, he has, uh, they petitioned the Supreme Court uh, to, this seems to be the first step in maybe getting the Supreme Court to look at your case, but the <laughs> Supreme Court has um, said, yes, in fact, we are going to need a uh, an explanation mm-hmm. from a lower court as to how they arrived at their decision. And now Donziger is saying this is basically, this is the DOJ, because as I recall, right, the, the, he should have, been, for, for the crimes he's alleged to have committed um, or found to have committed, right, these sort of mm-hmm. process right. lawyer crimes, um, he should have been tried by the Southern District of New York. Correct. Which declined. Because they looked at his case and said, nah, there's nothing here. We're not going to do this. This isn't really this. This isn't a thing. And Chevron went over that the district's head to say, no, no, somebody's got to prosecute this guy. Let's organize it. And And so he was prosecuted by some sort of federal administrative judge. Yeah. It it was unprecedented. So it is the federal government that's going Mm -hmm. to have to explain to the Supreme Court, which agreed uh, unanimously that they wanted to start this process uh, to explain what they've done. And so this, I understand, is the first, you know, if the Supreme Court looks at that and says this explanation isn't sufficient, then perhaps we go to step two. And then maybe Donzinger actually gets gets his day in front of the high court yeah. in some distant future How date. How amazing would um, that be? But, you know, at least this, it's a step forward, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's the initial step forward. And we're going to try and talk about what it means in more detail later this week. You found an interesting story at CNN, too, about the man who, well, not about, but... It, Related to the man who assassinated Shinzo Abe. Honestly, talk about getting everything you wanted. What the heck? Yeah, the Japanese government (laughs) yesterday announced an official inquiry into the Unification Church, which is the entity that the man who assassinated Abe accused of influencing Japan's politics and defrauding his mother, Mm -hmm. if I recall correctly. Right. Um, And so uh, Japanese Prime Minister (laughs) Fumio Kishida has ordered an investigation into the church uh, and Particular because, you know, it is it is his party, the Liberal Democratic Party, right. uh, that is so implicated uh, in, in you know, this scandal of having ties to that church that are far too close. Uh, so he announced yesterday that the probe would be carried out using the right to ask questions provision of the Religious Corporations Act. You don't know anything about Japanese law, but I am told by CNN that this is going to be the first inquiry established under this right to ask questions act. Uh, also, Kishida, when he made this announcement, said that as of the end of September, a phone hotline established to receive tips 
about the church or consultation requests regarding the church uh, had gotten more than 1,700 such requests. Amazing. So You remember we had uh, KJ No on mm-hmm. right after Abe was killed, and he went into some depth on the Unification Church. Now, here in the United States, the Unification Church is derided as the Moonies. Yeah. It's a cult. They own the Washington Times newspaper, but they are very, very wealthy as an, as an organization, and they spread that wealth among conservative politicians. So this, this inquiry may actually have some, some effect yeah. on this side of the, considering, of the Pacific. I mean, I haven't checked lately, but the people of Japan were pretty down on Abe. Yeah. Uh, there was some, like, very little support for giving him any kind of state funeral. Right. And pretty angry about all of this. And it's probably not a, you know, it's probably not a secret in Japan. Uh, but, you know, now that it is getting some very public attention, mm-hmm. I think there will be an appetite for some consequences, perhaps, if they perceive so, their government as having been corrupted by this weird uh, and n- not least this weird foreign entity. Yes. Right. Which is probably going to be not least of the issues. I think you're right. Yeah. Australia made a very, very um, odd announcement this morning that it was moving its embassy in Israel Back to Tel Aviv. Take backsies. Wow. I mean, it just shows you how stupid this whole thing is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the American embassy, of which Donald Trump, of course, uh, to much fanfare, moved from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. Um, that was really in name only. All they did was they put up a plaque saying, this is the embassy now, thanks to Donald Trump and Sheldon Adelson. Uh, the truth is that the, air quotes, embassy that we had in Tel Aviv was very small. And the consulate, air quotes again, that we had in Jerusalem was gigantic because that's where all the business was taking place. It was just what we called each one of these two buildings. Well, that was the same with the Australians and with the European Union countries and pretty much everybody else that had an embassy in Tel Aviv and a, and a consulate in Jerusalem. Symbolically, however, this is very, very important. Sure, of course, because, you know, the more... The more Jerusalem is recognized as a capital of Israel and not of a potential potential Palestine, That's right. you know, this affects any possible, you know, whether you still want to dream about a two state solution. This depends. This affects the shape of those states. And if Israel can say, well, everybody in the world recognizes that Jerusalem is part of our state and not this other one. Yeah, this this these kinds of acts shift weight. Yes. Uh, around. Wanted to give our listeners a heads up, too, about an issue that appeared in today's Washington Post that we're going to address in more length, at more length, tomorrow. And that is a, a, an American citizen, originally from Saudi Arabia, when he was in the United States, tweeted a criticism of the Saudi government. He then went back to Saudi Arabia to see family and was arrested and charged with sedition. And uh, after a kangaroo court trial, was sentenced to 16 years in prison, followed by 16 years of a travel ban. He'll be 104 years old by the time the sentence is is finally finished being carried out. Um, Again, an American citizen. Uh, Joe Biden is being called upon by human rights groups now and this man's family to stand up to the Saudis and tell them to let this guy go and to let go other American citizens who have been convicted of political crimes in Saudi Arabia. This is an ongoing problem. It has been for several years now. And uh, our government is just not addressing it. We're so focused on on um, Griner. What's her name? Her first name? Brittany. Brittany Griner. Mm-hmm. 
and Paul Whelan and people like that, that we've just not paid attention to, uh, to Americans being held in Saudi Arabia. One of the points made by Josh Rogan in this piece in the Post today is that this poor guy, he's in his 60s. He wasn't even visited by an American consular officer until he had already been in prison for six months. They've just ignored him. So we're going to talk about that you know, in more length at more at length At the same tomorrow. time, the Washington Post has this big story. Again, want to get into yeah. it in more length. This big story about uh, John. I'm glad you're sitting down because I'm here to tell you retired U.S. generals and admirals are taking top jobs Imagine. with the Saudi crown prince. Imagine. And then in tiny little parentheses, it's like and others like this is not a Saudi problem, right? right. This is a this is a global issue. But the. Post says more than 500 retired U.S. military personnel, including scores of generals and admirals, have taken lucrative jobs working for foreign governments, mostly in countries known for human rights abuses and political oppression. That 500, by the way, is only since 2015. Great. So it's a lot. Yeah, that's um, a lot. And they start with Saudi Arabia as an example because Saudi, Saudi Arabia is, 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 occupies this very interesting place in this sort of American psyche as close and extremely important partner and also acknowledges a really bad place, like really yeah. top, it's, top it's notch in terms place, of bad places. Without a doubt. 15 U.S. generals and admirals have worked as paid consultants for the defense ministry there since 2016. You know, I'd be interested to know how many CIA officers, retired CIA officers have done that because I personally know of a bunch. Yeah. I you mean, know, one of them on CNN, Philip Mudd, uh, Phil and I worked together for the whole 15 years I was at the agency when Phil left the agency, he was very happy to take Saudi money. I think he couched it as something like a think tank salary or some such silly thing. But there are a lot of CIA people who are very happy to take Mohammed bin Salman's bloodstained money. Yeah, yeah. I told you how surprised I was to be addressed at a uh, it was like an energy conference in Kazakhstan to be addressed by Wesley Clark. Wow. One time a presidential candidate who, you know, we walked out of, I forget what branch of service he was in. I think the army. Army. Uh, Yeah. Walked out of the army and walked into a job as a consultant for a big oil company. Figures. Yeah. I mean, and I don't remember exactly who, you know, I don't remember whether there was a sort of national backing to it or not, but yeah, that's what these guys are doing. They're taking that cachet and they're taking those connections. That's right. And uh, and I guess their expertise and going to help whoever's going to pay the most. Gutter does the same thing. How many CIA officers retired were outed when um, somebody blew the whistle on the fact that the gutteries were bugging everybody in Doha in advance of the the next uh, World Cup? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, this is not to say, you know, surprise, surprise, people try to make money. Mm -hmm. People try to use their skills and connections to make money and that people are sometimes greedy. It's to point out how political our government's choices as to, you know, who who is an acceptable, which nations are acceptable and which nations are unacceptable and which nations should we punish and which should we not punish? And That's who, right. Who should you as a lowly individual work for uh, versus not work for, right? That's uh, right. And, you know, it's it just, it's, there's no principle here. There's no, there's no universal application of, of any kind of ideology. It's just who's, you know, who's in the way of our national interest right now. I noticed that you put in a New York Post story that I shook my head at when I was reading it this morning. Um, Wyoming college wrestlers were attacked by a grizzly bear after going out on a hunt. Did you see the picture of these guys? That's terrible. But wow, the one guy took it mostly to the face. Yeah. It's incredible that they have survived. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, honestly, if I ever get attacked by a grizzly, I, I hope to come away looking like that. Yeah. 
uh, because they're yeah. they're intact. They are. They're intact. <laughs> just they cut up. Uh, yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, there's another picture from from the hospital bed of one. Like one had a broken right. broken arm. Right. Bear just jerking you around by your arm. Yeah, that's enough to rip your arm off. Yeah, and credit to I like it. It you know. The bear started attacking one of these dudes, and his friend came and it, you know, drew yeah. the bear away. Yeah. Good job, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good job. With the, we should all be so did, brave. Did y'all also happen to see the New York Post video of the woman um, walking 25 feet behind a, a herd of buffalo, just saying, well, I hope the buffalo don't notice me, but I, I don't want to cut through the bushes, she says. And a buffalo turns around and just charges her. And all you see is her camera flying up in the air, right? And it's, you know, it's just a jumble. And she keeps screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then the video ends. I mean, we must hearken back to the, the great video. <laughs> Probably this was like 2019 or 2020 or something. But it was that reporter, a local reporter who sets up to do a shot. In like Wyoming or Nebraska or call, I forget where, and uh, watches. He's he's speaking his lines to the camera, but he, his eyes keep darting over to the side. And then you see the buffalo start to come down the hill, and he just starts saying nope, 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 and packs up and leaves. And he got a lot of praise from park officials saying he did exactly the right thing. And it like yes. really uh, it propelled his career. I think he you know mm-hmm. I think he was uh, he was actually pretty ha- pretty they happy say about that. Don't get within seventy five yards of a buffalo. Because they're unpredictable and yeah. they're they'll charge. Yeah. And they're fast. Hey, we shouldn't we should probably shouldn't do animal stories for too long while our no. guest is on the line. No, we, we're <laughs> gonna take a very short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back with our first guest, Mark Sloboda. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. CNN and the British press are reporting this morning, and the Belarus Defense Ministry is confirming that Russia will send 9,000 troops to that country, and countries allied with Russia will close their embassies in Kiev immediately. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko says that the move is defensive, but Western analysts fear that the Russian military will strike a ground, well, sorry, will launch a ground assault against Kiev. Meanwhile, in the face of increased Russian strikes in Ukraine since the bombing of the Kirsch Bridge, a new Gallup poll shows that 70% of Ukrainians want to keep fighting until Ukraine, quote, wins, unquote, the war. Of those, 91% define winning as recovering all territories in eastern Ukraine and the entirety of Crimea. We're joined by foreign affairs and military analyst Mark Sloboda. Good to have you back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. And well, thank I, you, Mark. I, I missed Michelle's last there when, when talking about animals. Mark, <laughs> we were saying we probably should have just brought you in for the animal conversation. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. You, you know, I, I prefer animals to people by a large margin. <laughs> I correct. Mark, I'm going to I'm going to start with this breaking news from a couple of hours ago about the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts on how. This Nord Stream sabotage investigation is going. Germany has apparently also concluded that the blasts were likely the result of sabotage, as have the Danes and apparently the Swedes. The Wall Street Journal also reports, quote, 
The German investigators haven't been able to definitively link the suspected sabotage to any one actor, but some German officials say they are working under the assumption that Russia was behind the blasts, unquote. How should we take that? Why are they working under that assumption? On what basis are they ruling out the United States, which has been publicly opposed to even the the inauguration of these pipelines in the in the first place? Yeah, on, on the basis of geopolitics. There of you course. go. I mean, that that's the basis, right? There is no investigation. Let's 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 forget that right there. Sweden has pulled out of any investigation. Right. Saying sensitive information. Right. What could be so sensitive that uh, that Sweden wouldn't even want to participate in the investigation? Right. If it was simply blaming Russia, they'd be screaming it to the heavens. Right. Germany has also pulled out of the investigation, leaving the question what investigation is even left at this point, um, I, I, except for, you know, Denmark, which is even more of, of a of a, of a U.S. vassal than Germany is. And Germany's own pipeline just just got blown mm-hmm. up almost certainly by the U.S., perhaps with the participation of the U.K., Poland and Denmark, you know, uh, maybe Sweden was in on it too. Uh, but Germany has also pulled out of the uh, uh, investigation and will not release any information right. that it has, even to its own politicians who have requested it, citing uh, national security interests, right? All right. right. Now, what are those national security interests? The national security interests is if Germany and other countries in Europe admitted that it was the U.S. who blew up their pipeline. You know, it was, you know, uh, Russia had a majority share in the pipelines, but they were uh, uh, European energy majors all had major investments in them as well. And it was bringing They were built to bring energy to Europe, to satisfy Europe's energy security. And the U.S. said, we know your energy security needs better than you do. And uh, they they made sure there could be no going back. If they had to admit this, right, what would be the consequence of that? The dissolution of NATO. That is Mm. what it would be. And Mm. that cannot be that, that cannot be countenanced. It can't even be considered. You can't say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. That's it. Done. That there, there, is, there will be no, no there's no investigation. There will just be a blaming Russia because the alternative is to blame the one really responsible, the U.S., possibly with some help. And that is just not geopolitically acceptable. That's right. That's it. I would have serious and, trouble believing, too, that a Russian submarine or a boat with Russian frogmen. Yeah. Would just go utterly unnoticed in NATO waters. Yeah. I, the U.S. was just there the week before. <laughs> all right. I mean, they, they had they were doing naval drills. They were flying helicopters over the air. I mean, this is a joke. This is this is a joke. I mean, you forget that it's Russians have magical powers. Joke. That's how they, yeah. they can influence elections with with mere pennies, you know, wreak havoc, yes. cause ca- yeah. cause racism and corruption in yeah. America from afar. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. 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 The, the pro-Russian East Ukrainians, they bomb themselves for eight years, right? Right. The, uh, Russia right, right. bombs their own forces in the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Russia bombs their own Crimean bridge. Russia bombs their own pipelines, which was a, a huge revenue source and a source of, of, of political leverage with Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a sick joke. The idea is we can just tell our own people – 
that Russia is responsible for everything, even harm inflicted on itself. And the mainstream media is so compliant in its stenography that they won't seriously question it and that our sheeple will just believe anything because Russia bad. Right. I mean, that that's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, bad and suicidal, evidently. It comes uh, masochistic, it. even. <laughs> Uh, you know that it's it's sad. It's uh, uh, it 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 shows how far from journalism the Western mainstream media has fallen. Uh, you know, and and they were had were already pretty low to begin with, um, and and it is assuming that the the Western peoples, the American people, the German people, are all. Uh, idiotic. I mean, and I know the listeners of Sputnik are too smart to believe any of this nonsense. But, uh, you know, uh, polls continue to show that certainly most Americans are perfectly willing to accept this, despite the fact that it makes no logical sense whatsoever. I want to ask you about uh, these movements of troops to Belarus. Belarus is saying that the move is purely defensive. It's to be able to monitor and defend its borders with Ukraine. But of course, troop movements to Belarus also preceded the beginning of this stage of the conflict in February. What do you think is going on? Okay, so, I mean, the government in Belarus, uh, Lukashenko, Botka, he, he says lots of things. He's also said recently that Belarus reserves the right to a preemptive strike right. to prevent a strike against them, right? Yes. And it is no secret that the regime in Kiev was one of the staging grounds for the attempted color revolution to overthrow Lukashenko's uh, government during the elections there with the prop of this Svetlana Tihanovskaya. There was all sorts of uh, the Belarusian opposition, you know, being directed right out of Kiev openly. And so, yeah, uh, Lukashenko has an axe to grind with the regime in Kiev. He certainly does. Does that mean that he's going to commit his troops yet? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it's anything is possible. Anything is possible. But OK, so first of all, the, the Belarusian forces um, are have have a substantial military. Right. Uh, but it's Soviet legacy. And yes, even their tanks have their T-72s have not been uh, modernized to the extent. In fact, a few weeks ago, there was a, a little over three weeks ago, there was a, a whole lot in the Ukrainian press that Belarus was sending tanks to Russia, right? Old T-72s. And that's because obviously Russia has run out of tanks and they need to, to, to borrow some old ones from Belarus. Right. And then just in the last week, the Ukrainians reported all these tanks T-72s being sent from Russia to Belarus. And now they're reporting, oh, Russia is preparing for an invasion of Kiev. No. All right. Belarus sent tanks to Russia for refurbishment and Russia sent them back. That, that's what happened. Right. I mean, um, but, you know, the, the, the media cycle driven by, you know, the uh, 
hysterics in Kiev, uh, you know, will will report anything. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that those tanks could not be used sure. uh, for any future involvement. But, you know, you see that the movements are rather easily explained. And 9000 Russian troops is, is nothing right. Even for the paltry force that went into northern Ukraine in the beginning of the conflict, which everyone agrees was not anywhere near enough and was not intended to storm Kiev. Right. 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 Uh, and 9000 is far less than that. OK, now, well, that's, Belarus, then let me interrupt you on that point, because that's my next question. I'm not a military analyst. You are. But it seems that 9000 troops doesn't seem like much. It's certainly not an invasion force. It 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 seems to me that if the Russians were going to invade and occupy Kiev, they would be using tens of thousands, a hundred thousand troops. What, what could they yeah. possibly do with 9000 troops if they chose to cross the border? Nothing. I mean, not, not much. I mean, um, now, I mean, the idea of the threat is that Belarus would mobilize and Belarus's army is considerably smaller in terms of manpower. They would have to call up reservists and then send in like 70,000 total with Russia's 80,000 still not enough uh, to storm Kiev. I mean, you could say they could take uh, control of of key railroad junctions in Chornogov. Mm -hmm. But the most likely scenario right now, right? That could change down the line. Russia could send more forces, right? And, and in a few months, Belarus could mobilize. The Belarusians, however, uh, military does not have combat experience, right? They haven't been involved in any wars since World War II. Uh, so their utility would be extremely uh, limited. But then again, the military forces that Kiev has defending, say, uh, the north with with Kiev and, and Chornogov or even the west, if if there was a move to slide down uh, western Ukraine and cut off western arms supplies, right. which would be a little far fetched and yes. be pretty logistically hard. But those troops are probably not the best Kiev regime troops either. They're probably conscripts with guns shoved in their hands. Right. So um, I think the most likely scenario here is that this is a fixing operation. They are making Kiev commit troops here, right, towards a possible border, you know, border incursion um, so that those troops have to be diverted from Kiev regime counteroffensives and you know, within a month or two, an almost certain Russian winter offensive. Uh, it, it seems that this is is diversionary and and intended to fix some some uh, regime troops there. And the amount of Russian forces involved so far, I don't even think are convincing enough to even seriously draw a lot of of uh, Kiev regime counterplacement. So I would expect that number of Russian troops to increase over the next month, but I don't think it will ever. You know, um, if Russia is starts sending enough troops there, right? I mean, these troops could be making preparations for a larger number of troops to come. If we see much larger numbers of troops uh, arriving, then there might be the possibility of something. But that will be clearly forecast. It's not something that can be hidden. Absolutely right. It seems that the Russians have recently adopted what I call the American model of striking critical infrastructure like power plants. Is this a response to the to the Kirsch Bridge attack or was the delay in hitting infrastructure calculated? No, I, I, I think, well, I mean, partially it's a response to the Kirsch Bridge attack. That was kind of, you could say, the straw that broke the camel's yeah. back. But 
it's also uh, the Kiev regime's attack on infrastructure in uh, Donetsk, which they have been electrical infrastructure for eight years. And they hit it, of course, in the two weeks before um, uh, Russia uh, started infrastructure uh, strikes uh, in Ukraine, um, uh, uh, strikes on electricity supplies in the Crimea, and strikes on electricity supplies in, if you want to say, mainland Russia in Belgorod, directly across the border from Kharkov, which have been targeted just ad nauseum for the last few months. So, I mean, if you combine all of those infrastructure strikes by Kiev together with the the Crimean bridge being the last straw, there is plenty of precedent here. Okay, you have made it okay. You have obviously set the precedent that in this conflict, it is completely okay to uh, attack electrical and other civilian arc uh, um, infrastructure. And, uh, you know, you've got nothing to complain about then. Uh, That's it. There is a, a big element of quid pro quo. Now, there is also an element that with the uh, change, uh, you know, with the calling up the reserves, the change of the status of um, Donetsk, Lugansk, uh, uh, Kherson and Zaporozhye uh, with the referendums to being part of Russia, allowing Russia to deploy more of their active duty military there as well. Obviously, there's a, ch- a whole change in, in the course of this. If they still call it a special military operation, then the self-limiting terms of it have completely changed. And now taking out the infrastructure is both a way to economically and socially stress the regime in Kiev. Um, and um, it is also a tactical move to limit the movement of troops um, from offensives and defensive areas, from from everywhere, troops, artillery, um, uh, shells, ammunition, uh, fuel, everything is transported by trains in yep. Ukraine, which are powered by electricity. So they're paralyzing the whole movement network. Um, and, um, you know, th- obviously, uh, come the winter, there this uh, get, war is going to be a whole new ball game. But the the you know the uh, final straw that dictated this if you will um, was the attacks on infrastructure in Russia by the Kiev regime and the attack on the Crimean bridge that was just you know that sealed the deal that was like okay we're on plan B now we're hearing a lot in the Western media about young Russian men not wanting to join the military. Thousands apparently have gone to neighboring countries like Georgia and Armenia. And we're also reading here in the States that the Russian military is just taking people out of homeless shelters, off the streets, even pulling them out of coffee shops. Is any of this true? Is the Russian military having trouble backfilling? Yeah, that is absolutely true, but it's not Russia. It's the Kiev regime, which has a a policy of mass force conscription that Mm -hmm. is grabbing people out of nightclubs, clubs, and beaches. No, none of that is true Mm. in the slightest, okay? Um, Russia has called up its reserves. These are all people that served in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. and have a contractual obligation all of, uh, you know, to be called up as reserves. You know, it's nearly an identical policy as it is in the United States, right? right. It's a very right. similar to in that regard. All of the people that have been called up 
uh, have prior military experience, and the majority of them have actual combat experience. All right, that's a big definition of what is combat, considering there's only a small number of troops that are directly, say, hand-to-hand engaged with the enemy, but you know they all have a form of experience and skills. These people that have fled the country, this is the liberal class. Right. This is right, the right. westernized liberals. They fled the country uh, in February. There was large numbers. They reported the same thing at the time. You know, oh, my God, Russia's going to collapse. Yeah. The brain drain. All the Western liberals are leading the country and no one noticed. And they all went to, you know, Armenia and Georgia and, and Kazakhstan and other countries where they didn't need a visa because the EU made it impossible for them to get there. Right. And they discovered that life wasn't actually so peachy there and they weren't, you know, welcomed with woken arms and didn't have that many opportunities. And there was no mass mobilization, so they all filtered back over the last few months. And then Russia called up its reserves and, you know, the media is full of all kinds of stories and rumors. Oh, my God, they're going to mobilize everybody. Everybody's going to be conscripted, just right. like is that going on in Ukraine. And they all fled the country again. <laughs> um, and um, none of those, a very, very, very small number of those who fled the country were people who had previously served in the military and and were called up and 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 you know uh, refused to call up. Now some of them were a small number. It should be noted that when the U.S. called up their reserves to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, that large numbers of of uh, well, okay, I shouldn't say large numbers because that that wouldn't be correct. Numbers of Americans fled to Canada and Europe, right? Reserve, you know, uh, people that should were available to be called up as reservists who didn't want to go. That that is a, something that happens in everywhere. But the truth is that there are far, far, far more people trying to avoid military service because of the actual mass force conscription of Ukraine, where it is illegal for men between the ages of 16 and 60 to leave the country. That is not true in Russia. And the liberals are all, you know, this 100, 150,000, whatever it is, they're all free to leave Russia and it will be much, much quieter without them. Indeed. Tell us about the mood in Russia, Mark. We see so much in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the other usual suspect papers that the Russians have been shocked by Ukrainian resilience, that they underestimated the the West's support for Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Is any of that true or is it the West that has underestimated Russian intentions and Russian resolve? Okay. So I do think that there was a general idea, including not just in the Russian people, but in the government, that the Ukrainian military would do what happened in 2014, uh, right after the the putsch, which is basically just collapse. Um, that large numbers of of uh, um, the conscripts, particularly from East Ukraine, would refuse to fight, and 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 you would have the same situation uh, that occurred in 2014 when the Ukrainian military just sat paralyzed and and could not or would not or refused to do anything, which necessitated the forming of the far right battalions off of the Maidan to start uh, the, you know, the uh, attempt to subjugate Donbass. You know, it took the Kiev regime months to uh, purge and get control of the military. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian military, uh, Navy, 
uh, you know, uh, military police security services defected to either Donbass or to Crimea and and thus Russia. Uh, so, but there's no repeat of this this time because they do have much firmer control of the military than they had before. And uh, the U.S., uh, the CIA, was actively working to uh, uh, compromise Russian attempts to penetrate uh, the Ukrainian military and um, the security services uh, to prevent, you know, the idea that they might agree to stand down or or um, uh, so on. That did uh, it, it did still happen in the south of Ukraine, actually, in Kherson and Zaporozhye, which fell with almost no fight and lots of Ukrainian uh, officials and security services personnel and a few military high-ranking people just fled the country. And uh, that was it because, you know, they were in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it did not work in Kiev uh, and Chornogov because, you know, the CIA is has the top few floor few uh, floors of of the SBU building uh, in Kiev, and they were actively involved and, and helped compromise those efforts. Uh, so you know there was that, but there was also huge miscalculations in the West. They believed that their economic war of sanctions would crush the Russian economy, and and that the Russian people would be starving in the streets and calling for the overthrow of the government and everything. And that actually represents far closer what is happening in Europe right now than any 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 similitude uh, to the situation in Russia. Uh, so miscalculations were definitely made on on both sides. But I do also believe that this was all you know you know th- there was a hopeful scenario and then there was a less hopeful scenario mm-hmm. and then there was a worst case scenario right. so there were contingency plans for everything except i don't know if the west had a contingency plan for if their economic war of sanctions now, because they, they, they never have a shocked. contingency plan this they, is something no. i've learned in government there is never a contingency plan there's never the, the milita- a plan the us B. military might have contingency yeah, plans maybe. but the us Department of War. I mean, I'm sorry, the State Department. They didn't have any contingency yeah, plan. No, that's right. We're going to have to leave it there. That was the voice of Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and military analyst based in Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits. We are not going to take a short break. No, we gotta go. We're going to go right into our next guest. Straight to France. We are going to talk about what exactly is going on there, what is happening with the strike, what's uh, happening on the mm-hmm. ground, and also, you know, what, what's going on with the government of Emmanuel Macron, which might see a challenge later this week as he tries to end debate on his budget and push it through using some parliamentary tricks. Getting into all of this with us is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst, and he's a Duke University professor professor of literature and of religion and critical theory. Dr. Surin, thanks for being here. Uh, you're welcome. So, as I said uh, to start the show, you know, the, the antics in the UK have kind of hogged the spotlight. And so France's pretty serious social turmoil has kind of gone under the radar, at least in the United States. Uh, trade unions today have begun a nationwide strike. Uh, it, as, as far back as last week, the government was already having to order workers at fuel depots to go back to work. But the problem has obviously not been solved. And 
it looks like Emmanuel Macron's government is going to have to invoke what is described as a rarely used constitutional tool to force through his budget, uh, which has been stalled in parliament and which might trigger a no confidence vote as soon as the end of this week. Uh, so let's start in the streets. Uh, talk to us about this strike, what the striking workers are asking for and why it got to this point. Well, um, France has seen increased union militancy in the last year. Now, the obvious spur to this um, surge in union unrest has, of course, been the energy crisis um, caused primarily by Russia turning off the, um, uh, the sources of energy to Western European countries. Now, what has ensued from that is something that has taken place in other European countries. The uh, energy providers have used this as an opportunity to price gouge. Um, And as a result, um, energy costs have gone through the roof. Inflation has gone up. It is 6% in France, not as high as in the UK. Um, where it is just over 9%, uh, but enough to say, uh, to provide sufficient information uh, that people are starting to suffer from a cost of living crisis. Um, Energy prices are going up, uh, gasoline prices are going up, compounded, of course, by the shortage caused by the strike of refinery workers it is estimated that just over 30% uh, of gas stations in France are experiencing shortages. Um, So that is the context uh, for what has been happening. Um, Wages at a standstill, uh, inflation up, uh, energy prices going through the roof, obviously uh, motivated in the main, not entirely, uh, by price gouging. Is there concern in Europe, where this is a much bigger story, uh, that this strike will spread? Well, I think uh, we have to enter a caveat here. Mm -hmm. It is a nationwide strike. It is not yet a general strike, Mm -hmm. meaning that some unions have opted out of the strike. But, of course, uh, the scope of the strike is nationwide without all unions participating in it. So, I mean, I'm just sort of wondering, like, we've seen scattered protests around Europe. You've seen strikes in different in different sectors in a limited way. Uh, the strike that started in France seems to be, an, as you say, it's not a general strike, but it is a nationwide strike. And I would expect that people are going to be watching to see what kind of outcome it achieves. You know, and I also wonder what this means for the government of of Emmanuel Macron and if he is being blamed in particular, his party is being blamed in particular for the conditions that people have found so unendurable that they've decided to strike over them. Well, you know, uh, another caveat has to be entered there. Uh, France has a culture which is much more amenable to strike Mm -hmm. than perhaps any other industrialized country in the world. But that having said, I think the key factor here will be the unions that are lurking in uh, the wings, such as the teachers' unions, um, who are considering strike action. Um, And then, of course, there are the transport unions, 
Um, and if they go on strike, then there will be uh, a, a widespread paralysis um, in uh, in France um, with uh, the possibility of supply chains being further impacted by a transport strike. I want to ask who this is going to benefit politically. Uh, we talked about the protests yesterday, the protests on Sunday that were organized by a left coalition of parties, uh, which was heartening to me because usually it, it seems like uh, it's the right wing that does a better job of sort of carrying the populist mantle and, and involving itself and uh, benefiting politically from these sort of like economic uh, kitchen table issues. And so I, I wonder, you know, who you see is the most powerful opposition to Macron's government right now? And, and who is going to be making the most of this political opportunity in France? Uh, well, I think the trade union leaders, uh, such as the, the CGT boss, Philippe Martinez, uh, he's the boss of the, uh, the union in, uh, in the food industry and healthcare. Uh, and uh, along with a couple of other union leaders, are obviously making the pace on this. Um, in terms of official politics, uh, the party that is leading the opposition to the government, not in parliament, but uh, on the streets, is the France Unbarred Party, which is uh, left-wing. Its leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, performed fairly well in the presidential elections in April. And uh, he he is gathering quite a bit of support. But as I said, uh, the key factor here will be the participation of unions that are, as of now, standing in the wings. What do you think would drive those unions either to join uh, and and you know push this on the way to becoming a general strike or to decide to sit it out. What what kind of forces are at play there? Well, Macron has introduced a set of palliative measures, uh, such as a freeze on energy prices, um, some uh, social welfare enhancements, etc., uh, etc., et um, in the hope that this will uh, release the pressure on people who are suffering, genuinely suffering, uh, to take to the streets and opt for more left-wing options. So it'll remain to be seen, <coughs> pardon me, people are already saying that these, um, these measures are just window dressing, um, but it'll take a while to see if they um, take effect. The other thing that uh, is being considered uh, is uh, the attempt by the government to force key staff, uh, staff at the, uh, the oil refineries back into work. Um, so the government said it would have to begin to requisition workers at a key uh, oil depot in southeastern France from 2 p.m. yesterday, and it is employing a same, the same strategy uh, at another depot in the north of the country. Well, we shall, it's too early because, you know, these were implemented yesterday. Uh, it's too early to say just how effective this 
attempt to force workers back to work will be. Um, now, Macron, and at the same time, is uh, proceeding uh, very gingerly. Uh, he has accused the main uh, French petroleum producer, uh, Total, of price gouging. Well, he didn't use those words, uh, but uh, in effect, he's accused them of price gouging. Um, so far, he's uh, operated at the level of persuasion, uh, pretty much saying, well, you know, come on, accept your moral and social responsibilities, etc., etc. Um, don't give uh, record handouts and bonuses to your CEOs, etc., etc., while your workers are suffering. But as I said, all this is voluntary. So it will remain to be seen uh, how much the unions uh, will be able to exert pressure, while correspondingly, uh, the bosses simply turned a blind eye to Macron's uh, blandishments and attempts at persuasion. I mean, that's very much the, the Joe Biden pattern that we've seen here as well, saying, telling oil companies to do, do their duty, uh, but, you know, stopping at persuasion instead of, uh, you know, applying any actual force. I also want to ask about how big a deal is it that Macron's budget has been stalled? Uh, it's described as being stalled in Parliament as left and right parties add rival amendments. And, you know, it, it seems like at least from the left wing parties, some of these amendments are things that Macron got rid of uh, that alleviated the tax burden on French corporations, which would certainly seem to be relevant to the the causes that are driving the strike. Um, you know, how how important is it that he might have to his government might have to trigger this constitutional mechanism to get the budget through? I, I know that it's reported that, you know, possibly this could trigger a no confidence vote. But, you know, uh, at least the, the conservative side of the parliament has said they're not going to vote to bring down his government. So, you know, it stays in the realm of symbolism. Uh, but even as far as symbolism goes, how, how important is it that he's facing uh, this much resistance from parliament? Well, it's it's fairly obvious that uh, there was going to be resistance. Um, we have to remember that uh, on the sidelines here uh, is the far-right party headed by Marine Le Pen. Um, and uh, she has not been very prominent uh, in these protests, I think, saying, you know, we will let uh, a centrist like Macron and uh, the parties on the left uh, gouge each other's eyes out. Um, so a lot will depend on uh, any future interventions that she might make. Uh, another consideration, of course, will be uh, how effective is Macron going to be at public persuasion? Um, France is a deeply divided country on this issue. Um, it realizes that workers are suffering, but so is uh, uh, the general mass of workers. And if they are in inconvenienced by uh, strikes in the medical sector, in transportation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, they, they might not be so enthusiastic about participation in strike action. So I, I think we have to give this a few more weeks uh, to unravel. The uh, 
Macron will, of course, um, turn the screws uh, somewhat, at least in terms to manipulate public opinion, turn the screws on the energy companies. And uh, we shall see how far he goes with that. Now, the constitutional mechanism that you mentioned, Article 49.3, that is going to be very much a double-edged sword. What that uh, constitutional provision allows is for Macron to force through his budget without a vote being taken on it in Parliament. Now, the immediate threat, should this be implemented, is, of course, a vote of no confidence in him. I think the uh, the polling indicates so far that this vote of no confidence will be massively divided, divisive, but uh, Macron is likely to survive it. Though, of course, whether he survives it unscathed uh, is highly highly improbable. Um, he will have to make concessions as a condition of his survival. And, of course, the nature of those uh, uh, concessions could weaken him further. So uh, I don't think, I think, as you pointed out earlier, uh, this is simply uh, this threat to use that constitutional mechanism is, for now, uh, a symbolic gesture. But a lot will will depend on how events unfurl. Yeah, it will be very interesting to watch and to see, you know, what what kind of other actions this does or doesn't inspire. That was political analyst Dr. Ken Surin. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. We're going to take a quick break here in just a second. John, I wish I had more time to tell you this, but guess who Kanye West was talking to last night? Oh, I... I... Chris Cuomo. Oh, Chris yeah. Chris Cuomo on Weren't his new show. Weren't they fighting? Yeah, of course. I think they're fighting. They're feuding point in fighting with someone who is mentally ill right who is not so it's just yeah. not there's not a there's not a coherent no. thought process that can and get you to get said, you to these things the, that he said kanye or yay yeah there said, you go there see You're I, I learned you're with it he said that the underground jewish media mafia has been after him he said in that fight with Chris Cuomo. Yeah, it's just it. Uh, yeah. We don't have time to talk about why it's uh, it's silly and pointless. But ha- have at it, guys. Enjoy each other. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and talk uh, more about some domestic politics when we come back, including Pete Buttigieg <laughs> coming back out to the fore. Pete Buttigieg, we'll seriously. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Igor Danchenko case was sent to the jury yesterday afternoon, and deliberations continue today. Danchenko's case is special counsel John Durham's swan song. Russiagate turned into a big fat nothing burger. The only crime that's been charged, and that's in the Danchenko case, uh, is for lying to the FBI. Uh, was it all really worth it? 
And why hasn't Christopher Steele been charged with a crime? Last week, we told you about Joseph Burrell, the EU foreign policy chief who had threatened armed action against Russia, something that is not at all within his portfolio. Well, on the same day that he made that threat, he made another provocative comment at the opening of a new diplomatic institute in Brussels. Burrell, speaking about immigration, said this, quote, Europe is a little garden, but most of the rest of the world is a jungle, and the jungle could invade the garden. The little garden cannot defend itself by building a wall. Why? Because the jungle has a strong growth capacity, and the wall will never be high enough to protect the garden. The gardeners, then, have to go to the jungle. Europeans have to be much more engaged with the rest of the world. Otherwise, the rest of the world will invade us by different ways and means, unquote. Incredible. We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of the polemicist.net. Jim, great to have you back. Thanks for having me again. Jim, we don't know yet the outcome of the Danchenko trial, but this seems to be closing out Russiagate with a whimper. The last trial, the only other trial, ended in an acquittal. But what about the bigger picture here? Why was nobody prosecuted for perpetuating this Russiagate lie in the first place? Because uh, you just don't do that kind of thing. I mean, the, you, you don't go after the FBI for perpetuating phony narratives and phony stories that are designed to, uh, you know, for political reasons. I mean, that's part of the game. And everybody's going to, at the end of the day, not want to upset that game too much. So they will prosecute a few figures. They'll get a Roger Stone conviction or a, a Denchenko conviction for lying on under oath um, in some way or another. But as you say, I mean, there are many people behind the scenes here who were part of this and who knew what they were doing. They knew Danchenko was lying. Yep. Danchenko lied to the FBI and the FBI knew it and still went forward with the story that he told them. What was the thing I saw this week? Someone was offering, was the FBI offering them a million dollars, offering someone a million dollars to lie about this or to tell the story they wanted? Yeah, they were so, offering yeah. a million to, uh, to Christopher Steele if he could prove the lies that he yeah. had already passed to the FBI. Right. So they 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 knew he was lying. They and they knew he wouldn't even couldn't even create a the rationale for it for a million bucks. So you know <laughs> this is the point. You know these guys were all making up stories for whatever reasons they did, and uh, and a lot of it was because they were trying to please the FBI because they knew what the FBI wanted to hear. But the FBI was knowingly passing on false stories that it knew to be false in order to make to keep the fiction going. So why isn't this being investigated? Well, because you just don't do this kind of thing. The I have to day. ask you about the Republican, neither Republicans nor the Democrats. Yeah, without a doubt. I want to ask you about this Joseph Burrell character. His racism was on full display in this speech that he gave in Brussels on Thursday. And he has also spoken decidedly out of turn about Russia. He's a 75-year-old Spanish socialist. But when he speaks, he sounds like a fascist. How did he get to the position that he holds as foreign policy chief for the European Union? And he's the head of, you know, one of the most important offices in the EU. Is there no oversight uh, for him or for his public statements? Well, what we're seeing here is, you know, he got that way because they knew that's the way he thinks. <laughs> and, and the European Social Democratic parties have over the last three years, uh, 30 years, become 20 years anyway, become, uh, you know, neoliberal parties that are trustworthy 
in all kinds of ways. And, uh, you know, the, the, the this, this, this little bit that he gave out, which, you know, exposes the kind of exceptionalism and supremacism of the European Union and of European social Democrats as well as right-wingers, you know, I mean, there's a jungle out there, and I mean, there's so many things you can get into with this, but, you know, they're breeding like uh, bunnies, and they're right, going right. to come here and jump over the walls, and so we got to do something about it. You know, it's really, about, as you say, you know, blatant racism of a certain kind, and but it's, it's the self-conception of, you know, fortress Europe and yeah. uh, garden Europe, you know, civilized Europe. And but what's really interesting, as you say, is that this is demonstrating that the EU, which is supposed to be an economic and social union, is really a, an adjunct of NATO. Behind the scenes, NATO is going to control what the EU does. Yeah. And Borrell is standing around being a spokesman for NATO's military actions in Ukraine. And uh, and that is something that everybody should take notice of. And, uh, uh, you know, threatening Russia with nuclear weapons and you know, so the EU is, is exposing itself here not only as racist, but as a, an adjunct to the military alliance that is Ukraine, that is uh, NATO. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I want to ask you about politics for a minute, too. Tulsi Gabbard dropped out of the Democratic Party last week and announced that she was now an independent. That's fine. No surprise. But there was a surprise yesterday when she endorsed retired Army Brigadier General Don Bolduc for the U.S. Senate seat in New Hampshire. Bolduc last week called in vitro fertilization, quote, a disgusting practice, unquote, and said he opposes abortion under any circumstances. He called the 2020 election stolen from Donald Trump, and he called for the abolition of the FBI. Tulsi Gabbard also announced yesterday that she would campaign for Blake Masters and Kari Lake in Arizona, both pro-Trump election deniers. Uh, and both of whom are opposed to abortion under any circumstances. If Tulsi's trying to make an independent name for herself, then why plant her flag on that far right wing hill? Yeah, say it ain't so, Tulsi. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, Bolduc, he does sound like a character out of Harry Potter. He does. Uh, Bolduc also has called for. Special operations troops in Ukraine, arming Ukraine to the teeth. Let's get ready for war with China. So he is exactly at, at odds with the rationale Tulsi gave for leaving the Democratic Party because it's a cabal of warmongers, which was true. And so she's going now to team up with one of the warmongers that are not in the Democratic Party, but in the right wing Republican Party. And it's a it's self-contradiction in our own terms that is unfortunate you know i love Kelsey. i won't i'll give always give Kelsey credit for calling out of uh hillary as a queen of yes. warmongers and and kamala as the queen of prosecutors <laughs> but uh i never you know globally trusted or endorsed Tulsi because i didn't know what she was up to seems now what we're seeing is she's pulled you know, so she dem exit good leaves the democratic party it is a cabal of warmongers but where do you go you end up going into this cabal of warmongers and reactionary uh, fools who uh, want to, as you say, outlaw all abortions, etc. And uh, I think this just we've seen. Uh, she took a little rest of R and R and came back with a opportunism leading the way. Yeah. I don't know where she thinks she's going. As you say, I can't help but guess she's looking for maybe a vice presidential spot with DeSantis, which would be terribly 
<laughs> terrible end for her. But uh, wow. you know, she's looking that. somewhere to she's looking for somewhere to go that's going to get her in the political spotlight again in some way. And I, it, it seems to me she's instead of choosing choosing what would be a really independent path, yeah, and which gets some respect for her from all sides. What she's doing is she's choosing the side that's just you know Tweedledee. I was talking to Garland Nixon uh, before the the show started. Uh, and and we were talking about the two parties being so wildly unpopular right now. We've got a record number of Americans who identify as independents, <coughs> excuse me, identify as independents and and feel no loyalty to either one of the two major parties. And I said, wouldn't it be great if this created an opportunity for for viable third parties? And I don't mean the libertarians and the greens. I mean, real third parties that can raise money and get on 50 different ballots, 51 different ballots and and um, and make national campaigns. And he said, yeah, that would be great. Neither one of us thinks it's going to happen. But then last week I was talking to Jesse Ventura, who is very excited to my surprise, very excited by this this new party, the forward party. Um, he says that Christine Todd Whitman is an old friend of his. He loves her. He trusts her. And uh, 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 what was his name that ran for president for the Democrats? Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Why can I not remember his name? <laughs> he didn't make much of an impression on me, I guess. Andrew Yang uh, joined that party and a former Republican congressman from Florida. Uh, Tulsi didn't go to the to the forward party. And I don't know if the forward party is going to get on a single ballot in 2024. We just don't have any idea. But do you see Tulsi's action and the, the, the action of, the, uh, of the, these leaders of the forward party as moving in the right direction for alternates to the uh, Democrats and the Republicans? Uh, well, no, frankly. I mean, no. I, I, uh, yeah, I, Tulsi, Tulsi certainly isn't. She's not going an independent path. She's teaming up with Republicans. The forward party is a party of, we won't tell you what we believe in because the minute right. we do, uh, then you're not going to be interested up. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so they don't have, it's, it's the non-program party. And you've got a lot of that. And there's the, uh, I forget, I can't believe I forget the name of the new left party, but the, the problem is the American electoral system. And you they, it's it's virtually impossible to have a third party because the rule is stacked against you. A, a you need the money, and the, mo- the money in politics is going to kill you. And B, the rules are stacked against you. You can't get on the ballots. You know, so the yes. prerequisite for a third party movement is changing the rules of the game in significant ways. And there's no absolute. You need ranked choice voting. You know, you need all these things. And unless you do that, there won't be a third party. But no matter how great it is and how much I would like to I would agree with it or you know want to be part of it, it's going to run into a wall of these uh, of these election uh, discriminate discriminatory election yeah, rules. That's right. We got to do that. We got to change that. That is I, to me, that is the prerequisite for any real electoral politics in the United States. Be, and, and, and until we do that, I frankly think we should. And I also think that. That we should we should readopt the rules that the League of Women Voters had for presidential debates. That if you're polling at two percent or more, you should be invited to the debates. You know, uh, uh, Ralph Nader was at those debates. John Anderson in 1980 was at those debates. We need alternative voices. They should be given the same the same access to to airtime that the two major parties get. 
Absolutely. That was a much better system. And the, the, the Republicans and the Democrats just took it away. That's right. They, they did. They, they don't realize the extent to which this is controlled by the duopoly in the interest of the duopoly in order to deliberately exclude anybody. Yes. They excluded Tulsi. What she had, they should, they changed yeah. the rules to keep her. Out they did twice. They changed yeah. the, rule, the rules twice to keep her out of the debates. Right. So this is definitely should happen like that. And look, Ross Perot, you know, elected Bill Clinton because he, mm-hmm. he was in that, helped to elect Bill Clinton because he was in those debates. Uh, you know, so that you can have an, you, that, that one thing did have an effect, but at the end of the day, you, you, you can't get traction as a third party and in, in, in even the medium term, unless you have equal ballot access, unless you have some kind of restriction on, on inequality of spending and money, and unless you have ranked choice voting, which enables people to say, I'm going to vote for my first choice without fear of yep. the, the worst one coming, because I can put my second choice as a second choice. That's a crucial element, and we need it. And we, we our electoral system is screwed up in this country, and that's why we're going to be fighting about elections all the time for good reason. That is right. Uh, very, very quickly, and I apologize for putting a, a time limit on you, but we're squeezed right now. But the Washington Post over the weekend published its semi-weekly list of Democrats most likely to run for president. Joe Biden, of course, remains number one. But number two this week was a surprise to me. It was Pete Buttigieg. That surprised me because he's been MIA for the last few months. He played no role at all in the White House's work to head off this rail strike. Um, why is Buttigieg still such a star for the Democrats? He hasn't accomplished anything. Well, maybe because he's been out of the news for <laughs> the past <laughs> six months and he's done hasn't been able to do anything obviously stupid. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what 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 shape the Democrats are in in terms of twenty twenty four and the candidates. You know, if Biden runs again, uh, well, you know what that is. You know, if he doesn't and they don't nominate. Kamala Harris, then, well, you know what, the problem is going to be there, and the problem is going to be if she do nominate her, she's a disaster too, and mm-hmm. who is it? So, I mean, this is kind of by default. Who can we think of this week? Uh, Peter Burdichev, oh yeah, he's a good-looking guy, and seems a sweet character, and that's about it. I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. They don't have a program that's uh, going to be a pole of attraction to a great way. Nobody's going to be allowed to be nominated that isn't gung-ho on Ukraine, although Ukraine war may be re- resolved by then. Mm-hmm. And okay. that's going to change everything, and everything will change. And I, I expect we'll see surprise candidates emerging. Always. It happens every four years. We're sorry to um, to have to end this, uh, this segment with Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, thanks for joining us. Jim is the editor of thepolemicist.net. You're listening to, do we take a break? Do we yeah. have time for a break? No okay. breaks. We don't need a break here. Maybe we we'll don't. take one before okay. the show Excellent. ends. But I know we have our next guest on the line, and I do want to talk once again about, you know, a situation that is unfolding sort of by the day and by the hour, which is, uh, you know, whether the world is going to decide to support yet another armed intervention in Haiti. The calls for it are increasing, uh, as are the calls from, of course, some some on the island who say, please don't, please don't. We don't want you to assist in um, and uh, police actions here on behalf of a government that we don't consider legitimate. We are joined for this conversation by Danny Shaw. He's a professor of Latin American and Caribbean studies and race, ethnicity, class, and gender at the City University of New York. Danny, thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. So uh, things are developing with regard to Haiti. The U.S. and Canada have already delivered equipment to Haiti's police. The U.N. Secretary General is now calling for armed action 
to release a port that's consistently described as being blockaded by gangs. The U.S. and Mexico are explicitly looking for more U.N. support for such an armed action, but it still remains unclear who would be leading it. Um, And so before we get into that, I just wonder if you can tell us what is life like in Port-au-Prince right now and what is this intervention intended to save people from? Life across uh, Haiti, but specifically in Port-au-Prince, is extremely intense. Um, Gasoline right now is at $25 uh, per gallon. So between the gang warfare, uh, which is really uh, paramilitary uh, groups warring over territory, including for control over this uh, road fuel terminal, which doesn't allow fuel to flow to the rest of the country, things are very dire. Um, inflation, transportation's at a standstill. People aren't uh, allowed to work. So the everyday Haitian people, the 11 million people uh, of Haiti, definitely feel the um, desperation. They also feel um, centuries and centuries long resistance to the idea of a foreign occupation as it's laid out in the Haitian constitution. No foreign power has had any legal mandate within Haiti, though the U.S., and their allies have already usurped Haitian sovereignty four times just in the past uh, century. So this could potentially be the fifth U.S. foreign invasion occupation of Haiti, and that's why hundreds of thousands of people have been in the streets saying no to the invasion occupation. What, I guess, what what solution are they looking to, the people who are opposing, uh, you know, this security operation, police operation, however you want to term it? What what do they look to uh, to solve the, you know, the, the problems that you've described? The Haitian grassroots leadership is a very international leadership. Uh, there's been Russian flags in the streets. Uh, they're not opposed to some type of truly multipolar solution and, and dialogue with, of course, the grassroots sections of Haitians and representation of the peasantry and Haitian women and Haitian youth and trade organiza- uh, trade unions. They're not opposed to conversations with the Lopez Obradores uh, from Mexico, and, you know, they have an incredible amount of respect and admiration for Evo Morales and Nicolás Maduro. So it's not that they're opposed to some type of truly internationalist mission, um, but we'd have to really go through history to see where there's been successful examples of this type of internationalist response and solidarity. What they are completely opposed to is the idea that the troika of evil, as it's called here in Haiti, the United Nations Organization of American States acting at the behest of the U.S. government would be the ones to, again, come and carry out this occupation, which would be against their everyday economic interests and political interests. Yeah, I, w- I want to ask you to elaborate on uh, how we should understand the presence of Russian flags at some demonstrations over the past couple of days. I've seen them, pictures making the rounds on social media, and I know you've said, uh, you know, I suspect the answer is uh, something about an actual international uh, form of assistance rather than, once again, sort of one led uh, by and in the interest of American imperialism. But so what, what should we make of, of these flags at these protests? Those Russian flags are a middle finger to Washington and a middle finger to Paris and um, Montreal. They don't want uh, the historical usurpers of Haitian destiny here again. Uh, I also don't think they have any illusions that the Russians are 
going to do something here in the Western Hemisphere, at least you know, militarily, perhaps diplomatically, I think the Haitians have a lot of hope, and, and it's what the Russians have done. The Russians, the Russians and the Chinese are going to continue to veto in the Security Council. Um, uh, but the U.S. before has been vetoed and has found ways to bomb away uh, from Baghdad to um, <clears throat> Kabul to uh, Tripoli. So that's uh, the, the perspective from the grassroots um, actors here. Uh, we still don't quite live in the multipolar world. The multipolar world is emerging, but it would seem ambitious right now to think that the Chinese are going to collaborate with the Venezuelans, and the Venezuelans are going to get the Bolivarian bloc together, and they're going to be able to do some type of truly internationalist uh, mission here in, in Haiti. There's really no precedent of that in South American and Caribbean history. Well, the Cubans in, in Africa, perhaps, but again, that seems ambitious for um, October 2020. Mm-hmm. And let me ask what, you know, what would an intervention mean for electoral processes in Haiti? Because we, we you know, talked on this show quite a lot about the resistance to the government of Ariel Henry, which a lot of Haitians consider to be illegitimate and extended well past uh, what was constitutionally allowable. And so it seems like, you know, if he can def- present himself as uh, as besieged, right, as a wartime president, he'll have even more support for suspending constitutional regulations. Uh, and so, yeah, what what hopes would there be for, I don't know, electoral change in Haiti if, if we did see some kind of intervention? The unelected prime minister, Ariel Henry, is seen by the people as another Tissou Soublon, that means uh, a U.S. puppet in Haitian Creole. Um, just as Jovenel Moïse, who was assassinated on July 6th of last year, was seen as a puppet, um, as a local tyrant. Uh, and just as Michelle Martelly, who was uh, handpicked by the Clintons to be the um, prime minister with uh, very few uh, Haitian democratically voting. So this is the third iteration of the PHTK, um, bald-headed Haitian party, which has no popular support. So when the U.S. says we're the international community, there's the first euphemism. The international community would be the people of Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and well, the eight billion people of the world, right? The U.S. government and the Canadian government and the OAS, their allies to dub themselves the international community is a dangerous, dangerous uh, euphemism. Um, the second big euphemism is that they're going to buttress the democratic forces of Haiti, the number one terrorist in Haiti. I, I mean, the gang conversation is an important one to unpack as well, but the number one terrorist is the Haitian government and the millionaires and billionaires who live in the uh, prestigious um, pristine hills of Petionville. There's really two Haiti, the Haiti of 99. 8% of Haitians, and there's 0.2% of filthy rich um, gold barons and mineral barons and tourist barons who control this economy, who work very closely with the elites in Miami and in Washington. So to butcher the Haitian National Police, who've historically been the number one oppressor, the people on the ground here, funded by the U.S. and other foreign powers who shoot on the Haitian people every day when they come out into the streets, Canada and the U.S. sending more equipment to them. How does that affect the peacekeeping mission? Is the exact opposite. I want to ask, what do you think? How should we unpack this gang conversation? Because we have also talked to other guests who say, you know, yes, there there's gang activity, there's criminal activity, there is also political activity that is being uh, described as gang activity for political purposes. I, I wonder what you think people should understand about 
uh, who who the Haitian police are facing off against. The Haitian grassroots organizations, whether it's Papa or Molodaf or feminist organizations, continually point at Jimmy Barbecue Chirizier as um, a threat to everyday people in his confederation of uh, nine gangs, the Jeunesse. Uh, they see him as a paramilitary puppet that these uh, rich, privileged families have used to um, sink upon uh, the Haitian people. They think that the blockade of the number one uh, gas depots is against the interests of the everyday people and that Jeanette and Jimmy Barbecue Charizier are doing this for their own selfish interests and it has nothing to do with politics. So I've yet to hear one Haitian anti-imperialist leader, one Haitian democratic critical leader say that they trust these gangs with anything more than paramilitary outfits carrying out a proxy war against the everyday Haitian people. And I I also want to ask if perhaps we could have foreseen uh, any role the U.S. takes in this intervention, if it does come to pass, uh, when we saw the passage of this Global Fragility Act. Uh, This is a bill that was passed during the Trump administration. It was endorsed by the Biden administration, and it paved the way uh, for a new U.S. policy, a new U.S. strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability. Um, And so uh, this new strategy says it is going to be different from previous externally driven nation building strategies and that rather the U.S. will support locally driven political solutions that align with the U.S. national security interests. Rather than fragmented and broad-based efforts, the United States will target the political factors that drive fragility, which all sounds, I think, much more sinister than the drafters of this strategy intended it to be. Uh, And what do you know? Haiti was one of the priority countries recently selected for stabilization efforts under this U.S. Global Fragility Act. And so I, I wanted to ask, you know... How different you think this new strategy to promote stability is from past strategies and why you think it is that Haiti is among uh, the, the first batch of nations to supposedly benefit from it? The Global Fragility Act, it's a new euphemism. It's the same rhetoric as uh, always every day. The Haitian people, when asked these very questions in interviews here in Haitian Creole, respond by saying, what is Donald Trump? What is Joe Biden? What do they know about us and our history? We want nothing to do with them. All we've been asking for for how many centuries is to be left alone. It was up to the Haitian leadership, the the truly grassroots, revolutionary leftist leadership, the U.S. Embassy, the State Department, the intelligence services of the United States, Canada, and France, which we sent packing yesterday. Um, They do want to collaborate internationally, but they would never trust the very thieves of uh, yesteryear, of yesterday. And the Haitian people ask, how can those most responsible for our plight, most responsible for the colonial disease, now pretend to have the cure for us? They have no cure for us. So the slogan here in the streets of Port-au-Prince and across Haiti is hands off of Haiti. Yeah, Professor Danny Shaw, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Take care. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk about uh, health care and profit, a nasty combination that shouldn't be allowed to exist, in my opinion. Amen. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as I said, I want to talk a little bit about how the profit motive uh, warps our healthcare system and especially how uh, these, this pursuit of profit really is affecting the treatment of children, the treatment of pregnant people, the treatment of uh, the, the babies that they are carrying. Um, but because we have a couple of minutes before we can start that, I just want to elaborate on Kanye. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just think it's so... Uh, the fact that he's... I don't know. The fact that Chris Cuomo had him on his show to argue with him and, and Tucker yeah. Carlson also just shows like you're not taking this seriously. Yes. Because the thing, the first Without thing that happens, doubt. honestly, I don't really know why, except to say, I guess it is the sort of weight of, of history and cultural baggage and bigotry. But like basically the first thing somebody does when they start to go off the rails is see yeah. See the Jews behind that's everything right. that's wrong. It's, it's a just very like, common mental it's illness. It's just where it goes. It's where your mind, you know, it's, yeah. it, that is like fork one. You're yeah. wandering down. It's oh, I'm just asking, just asking questions the here. Da, 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 da. And then, yeah. you know, it very quickly, that's, that's when, you know, someone's gone off the rails. Yeah, it's true. It's not, it's, it's not like a coherent thing. It's not a, these people who really want Kanye to be part of their political process, um, it are obviously barking up the 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 wrong tree, right? Yeah, and so this idea that he has like rationally come to the it doesn't say like no. we he should be allowed to just spew hate speech no. and and uh, you know like the problem is he does have a giant he has a big platform and people are taking him seriously when he obviously is just uh, he's, getting nuttier he's and nuttier. There's yes. not a yeah. Yes, anyway. he's troubled. I just find it. I find it. I, I don't know that the answer was someone again who has as much fame and notoriety as Kanye West is to ignore him. But, uh, I mean, that's what you would do if it was, you ignore, if it was a regular person like you and I, you would just say, you should get some help. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to ask you to explain it because your explanation is not going to make any sense. You should right. just get help. Get some help. May I say real quickly, mm -hmm. in, in 2015, um, I was hired by the American Psychological Association to help them draw up a list of, of um, principles for psychologists who are involved in uh, forensic uh, psychological interrogations for, for the intelligence community. And um, we talked about this kind of thing. And they said that this is a very, very common manifestation of mental illness. Yes. When, when, somebody, when somebody falls into this, their brain defaults to wanting to blame the easiest organization or person or group of people for their problems. The Jews, in quotes, the Jews are one. The CIA is another. Uh, you know, people claim to be uh, kidnapped by space uh, aliens. It, it, it's, it's not at all uncommon. No. And clearly, you know, if it's, if it's not going to be Chris Cuomo, yeah. it's got to be a family member or a close friend of Kanye West to say, buddy, you need to check yourself into a into a facility yeah. and you need to get well. You're not having a, a, a meaningful political argument with no. a rational actor. And so no. what is the point? Correct. Yeah. All right. Back to health care. <laughs> back to health care. <laughs> and as I said, how uh, the pursuit of money is uh, causing the less profitable <laughs> To lose space at hospitals. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and an obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, thanks for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. So there have been a few stories recently highlighting the way profit is affecting the care people are able to access. And I honestly, it's starting to make me wonder whether this is a situation that is uh, intensifying. The New York Times wrote about pediatric wards closing because treating adults is more profitable. And a Texas NPR station in August did a story on maternity ward closures in rural Texas. Uh, the Times again last month did a massive multi-part series on mental health, uh, by the by, that I thought correctly noted that our current mental health crisis can only be solved politically and money is the reason people don't get treated. Uh, but of course, this is the same platform that would never advocate on its editorial page for a political candidate that promised meaningful economic or healthcare reform. But that's just by the by. I'm going to talk with these pediatric ward closures. The Times says hospitals around the country from medical Regional medical centers to smaller local facilities are closing down pediatric units, and the reason is economic. Institutions make more money from adult patients. And the story lists closures in Virginia, Oklahoma, Massachusetts, Colorado, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, it says part of the reason for this is because hospitals converted children's beds to adult ICU beds during the pandemic and are reluctant to change them back. Uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Hancock if you are noticing this trend and if you can tell us what impact it is having or going to have. Absolutely. Well, first, I want to just thank you so much for bringing attention to this very critical issue. And I'm absolutely noticing this trend and I'm very fearful of the consequences when there are fewer pediatric hospital services, especially at this point in the year. We're navigating through flu season, um, RSV season, and likely another wave of COVID happening at the end of this month, beginning of November, and we know that flu and RSV disproportionately affect children. What this does by closing down these pediatric wards is it increases the length of waiting time that families are experiencing, the length, the length of distance that they have to travel in order to be able to seek pediatric care. And then once they get there, the length of time that they're having to wait in an emergency department. I had a family who I ended up having to refer to the emergency room, they waited over 12 hours. By uh, the time uh, the 12th hour hit, they, my office was open. So we ended up, I was like, just leave and come see me because it made no sense for them to sit there any longer. And this is for a space where there is a children's health system. Where I live in Prince George's County, almost all families end up having to go into the District of Columbia to go to Children's in order to receive care because we here in Prince George's County, which is one of the most affluent African-American counties in the country, we have a pediatric ward desert even here. I'm hearing from my colleagues across the country that they're having to call multiple upon multiple health systems before being able to find a place to directly admit their patients. And you mentioned uh, the key driver being money. But this was an issue even before the pandemic, that our health systems are set up for profit. It doesn't mean that they're out there sitting on money bags. They have to meet their bottom lines. I have sat in on meetings. I'm on the board, the Community Health Advisory Board for Children's National Medical System. And it isn't that Children's is over there trying to make all of this money. They're just trying to keep their lights on to remain financially viable. And so they have to, hospital systems have to focus on what makes them money to remain viable, and that really is adult services like surgery, cancer treatments, and orthopedics. The blessing and the curse of pediatrics is that there's usually a low volume of children. Children are relatively healthy until they need to be hospitalized, and when they are hospitalized, pediatric care 
is reimbursed at atrocious rates. Insurance companies get to decide what they're going to reimburse, how they're going to reimburse. Insurance does not reimburse what it costs to provide pediatric care, either in the primary care setting or in the hospital-based setting. I'll give you an example. For me as a primary pediatrician, for a well-child checkup, and I provide my families with a full 60-minute visit. Most well-child checkups last for about 20 minutes. I charge $130. The insurance company will pay me about $70 for that visit, which is slightly less than 50% of the actual cost of care to keep my office open. Mm -hmm. And for Medicaid, which a good number of our children are insured under, um, the reimbursement rates are even worse than that. And it also varies from state to state. So, you know, imagine taking less than 50% of what it costs to care for a patient, multiply that by hundreds, by thousands. And that's what we're seeing happening across the country. When private insurers get to make the decisions about how much they're going to pay for care while simultaneously making billions of dollars in profits, that's where the real issue is. Yeah, I mean, how... How has it come to be that insurance has just decided that they're going to reimburse less for children and and get away with it? Because, yeah, that, this is the explanation or part of the explanation offered uh, for for these closures is that hospitals simply can't make enough to keep their doors open to, like, uh, pay for the space that they are occupying. But you do wonder, like, you just wonder how they were able to to uh, to pull this trick off. Absolutely. It goes back to regulations. You, you don't let the fox rule the hen house. They're going to do what they're allowed to do. And regardless of the care, in pediatrics, everything is reimbursed at a lower rate. Primary care, subspecialty care, health systems-based care in the hospital space, it's all reimbursed at a lower rate because they're allowed to do it. No one has challenged them to compel them to reimburse at a higher rate. I want to talk also about these maternity wards, which are, of course, part of the same problem. Um, and as you say, Dr. Hancock, uh, you know, the, our health industry has been, uh, you know, our health insurance industry has been for profit for a very long time. So this isn't new, but it does feel like the pandemic has maybe accelerated some of these forces. And so uh, the the writer of this story explained that uh, babies do not arrive on a schedule so if you have a labor and delivery unit in your hospital, you have to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you have to be prepared for the kind of labor that might present at any of those moments. And it says for many hospitals that deliver babies, that is one of the biggest uh, costs of their hospital. And so now, you know, people in Texas are having to drive very long distances to get maternity care to deliver their children. Um, and I, I wonder... You know, I want to ask you to elaborate on on whether you think that this is a crisis that is accelerating, because, again, uh, insurance companies have been making money off health care for a long time. That is nothing new. And yet it seems like shutting maternity hospitals and, and eliminating beds for children, that seems pretty drastic. It feels it feels like a crisis that is intensifying rapidly. No, I completely agree with you, especially when we're just starting to pay attention to maternal mortality in this country. Of all developed countries, we rank at the bottom, we are the last. And I would say that, again, to your point, it really is an issue of economics. And when it comes to maternal health, it's economic viability. Health systems were impacted as much as any other industry during the pandemic and were even struggling financially before COVID. We were dealing with a nursing shortage well before 2020, but the pandemic certainly made it worse between the basic costs of maintaining maternity units, as you have referred to, 
the inadequate reimbursement rate that we've talked about before, and then the actual increase in cost of care, particularly for nurses, and deservedly so. I'm not, I don't knock a nurse getting paid for the work that she does, but their salaries have increased by about 4%. Multiply that 4% salary increase for one nurse, hundreds of thousands, and then traveling nurse salaries per week have almost tripled because there has been such a demand. It's, again, about supply and demand. So hospitals are making business decisions to keep them afloat because they are just that. They are a business. They provide a service that happens to be healthcare. And we saw this happen well before the pandemic, locally here in D.C., when Providence Hospital closed their maternity ward and the United Medical Center um, was forcibly shut down. And then uh, Washington Hospital System decided that they were not going to accept three of the major Medicaid providers. All of that was the perfect storm to leave women on the east side of the city with no access to maternity services outside of having to drive at least 45 minutes to go to Howard or to go to Washington Hospital Center if they had the right health insurance. And so this ends up leaving a significant population, particularly women of color, specifically black women, vulnerable to these circumstances. Yeah. Where it always it always uh, galls me, where you have to pay for parking at Washington Hospital Center. It's just like, really? <laughs> you can't get here any other way and you want me to pay? Um, I want to ask, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that the people who are being left vulnerable by these changes, uh, babies, children, pregnant women, are traditionally uh, the, the cohorts in society that people are most motivated to protect. And so it makes me wonder if... if these moves in particular could prompt any kind of organized response. And I'm always also curious what role you think there might be for providers to play in, in trying to combat this trend toward, uh, you know, needing to be profitable. Absolutely. Well, the first thing I would say is that children don't vote. Yeah. yeah. From a political standpoint, they aren't the constituency, and they're going to suffer the consequences of not being able to have voice. But the beautiful thing is that we are seeing a shift, particularly in the maternal health space, of taking ownership of the birthing process by expectant parents through community-based organizations like Community of Hope in Southeast Washington, D.C. We see community members seeking out the support of midwives, doulas like myself, because I also get to, uh, am honored to wear the hat of a doula, to support them in their birthing processes and becoming less dependent on what we sort of standardly describe as the Western-based medical system. The challenge is that there's still going to be expectant parents who need higher levels of care. And we as a community need to be prepared to provide that care. In terms of the role of providers, I would say for physicians, we're, we've been fighting the good fight. Yeah. We've been getting paid less than we deserve, both in terms of patient reimbursement and, to be honest with you, in terms of salary. We're expected to see more patients through hospital administrators and then to see them faster while simultaneously trying to improve their health outcomes. Sometimes in certain organizations, our salaries and our job security are simply based on our ability to get through our patient volume. And then when we push back against hospital administrators and systems, we're often either threatened to be fired or simply replaced by slightly lower cost healthcare providers such as nurse practitioners and PAs. And again, no, not to them, but that's the space in which we as physicians specifically uh, sit. And that we collectively are exhausted. And it shows in the rates of physician burnout and in the rates of physician suicide. I know John has a comment here, but I wanted to say something about, I mean, yeah, nurse practitioners are great, right? I love nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. But I think that people 
operating in the U.S. health insurance system don't realize how often they are being seen by a nurse practitioner and not maybe a specialist that they are trying to, because I went through this sort of personally myself recently, and I was very surprised. And I think it does, you know, it does affect your health care to, to only ever be seen by the person who they can pay the least amount of money. Exactly. And I think that that is something that should be discussed. One, making sure that as a patient, you know with whom you are having your visit. Um, I often say, this happened with me and my mother and the person booking the appointment. She said, well, it's the same. I said, no, it isn't. I said, in the one week of my training, I have more training than a pediatric nurse practitioner with just one week of my internship as a pediatrician. Again, not to knock what they do. They serve an important role as healthcare providers, but it is not the same. And it's we should not be replaced simply because it's perceived that it costs less for us to be replaced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this has this has a, it, it, this affects people's lives in very Im- impactful and serious ways. John, did you want to get in here? Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Mark Loker, one of our uh, listeners, has a question. What does it cost now, Dr. Yolandra? to have a baby in a hospital and how much is the difference between um, insured uh, patients, insured mothers and those who are uninsured? That's an excellent question. Unfortunately, it varies based on which insurance you have. Really? The deductible is what your premium is there. I think the healthcare system is the only system where you don't know how much something is going to cost. Jeez. You've gone through it, right? Like if you take your car to the mechanic, the mechanic is going to give you an estimate, and you get to decide whether or not you're going to get your brakes done, your tires replaced, and the oil changed, right? Only in the healthcare system are you completely blind until you get the bill. And that's wow. why I have fought for and fully support a universal healthcare system. Because you don't know until you have had the baby. There's that talks you through. You're going to get charged by the OB, the anesthesiologist, the nursing care services. Heaven forbid the uh, PICU or the NICU has to come to the baby's bedside. That's an added charge. All of that you don't know until after you've had the baby. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about, for some expectant parents, opting to go the more natural route know how much it's going to cost for your doula, your midwife to have this baby in this birthing center. There are no surprise bills later, but only in healthcare are you surprised with the bill that you get afterwards. Dr. Hancock, also, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I did want to, um, I wanted to ask you about this nationwide Adderall shortage that the FDA just announced. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. I mean, just announced over the past uh, week uh, because it's, uh, the, the discussion of, about like uh, mental health care and drugs for mental health care is such an interesting and complicated one. And I trust that drugs like Adderall do have a place in treatment for for people. But I also feel like the surge in demand, which is what the FDA is uh, saying is a big factor in this shortage, reflects how much easier it is in our healthcare system to prescribe medication for a symptom rather than to treat a cause. And I say that knowing Adderall is perhaps not the best example of this, uh, uh, this contradiction, but I wanted to ask about it anyway. Do you, do you think we should be concerned if we are seeing a, a big rise in these kinds of prescriptions? I mean, a rise so significant that it results in a shortage. Absolutely. You know, I me as a pediatrician am a big proponent of sort of teasing out what is driving certain behaviors. It can't be as simple as 
writing out a prescription. We have to delve further. I heard the conversation that you guys had earlier about Kanye in terms of mental health issues. And I think, one, it's reflective of the lack of access to mental health care in this country. Again, it goes back to reimbursement. A lot of people working in the mental health space have now transitioned to cash pay pay services because reimbursement rates for mental health services it's so ridiculously low. But we saw this trend in terms of the increased um, rise in ADHD medication prescriptions well again before the pandemic. We saw a 700% increase in Adderall prescribing over the uh, span of 2003 to 2015. We then saw an additional 200% increase in Adderall's um, prescribing between 2015 all the way through until now. We also have seen just in the past year an additional 20% increase in Adderall prescribing. And the question is, is it truly that we're now just doing a better job of diagnosing ADHD or are we labeling mental health issues with the diagnosis of ADHD without delving further? Yeah. Given the fact that they're talking about running out of ADHD medications lets me know that we're doing a disservice to our community and providing them with the mental health infrastructure to be able to navigate through some of these crises that people are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, and I won't extend this because I know we have to let you go, but just the how easy it is to get prescribed a drug and how uh, easy it is to get reimbursed for that in comparison to how difficult it is to to find any kind of behavioral or talk therapy and to pay for it is just, it, it's an outrage. Uh, Dr. Yolanda Hancock, always such a pleasure to talk to you. Tell our listeners where they can go to find more of the work you're doing. You can find me on social media at A-S-K-D-R-Y-O-L-A, Ask Dr. Yola, and my website is AskDrYola.com. Thank you so much. John, we got a couple last headlines here. Did we, have we talked about these, uh, a lot of different takes on the possibility that Joe Biden is going to release strategic reserves, strategic strategic petroleum reserves? And, And apparently, at least I saw this on CNN as we were coming into the studio, we've used half of our strategic reserves in the last six months. Seems like a lot. A lot. Uh, So the oil market is worried that Biden is going to release another 100 million barrels Mm -hmm. of crude. I feel like the figure I saw this morning was 14 million. That's what he's thinking of as of today, because this story I'm looking at an insider is from Mm -hmm. yesterday. Um, Yeah. So the the oil industry does not want those prices to go down. But of course, people do want prices to go down. And Joe do. Biden definitely wants to look like he is doing something to affect prices at the pump, mm-hmm. which are not quite the story that they were a little while ago. But, you know, it's sort of I, I think it will be bundled into do, doing the idea of doing something about inflation. We'll be releasing this reserve, even though it is not, you know, going to immediately make gas stations lower their prices or make anybody's food less expensive. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Goes together with all of this conversation about whether the Democrats have peaked too early. Yes, that and are going to lose some of their midterm the momentum today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've been uh, scanning all of the news websites, and there's nothing yet on the Igor Denchenko trial. Mm. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that's good for him or if it's bad for him. Um, I don't is, know. This, is this longer than what is the guy's? Uh, what was the name of the lawyer? The was Clinton lawyer? Epsh- the, Epstein. 
No, the Perkins. Now you're being anti-Semitic. <laughs> the the no, Perkins no, no, the, Coy lawyer, right? Or oh, no? that guy. Yeah, that I thought guy. you meant the Trump lawyer. No, no, uh, no. Epstein, and I forget his first name. No, now. the Clinton lawyer yeah, who definitely who like did lie to the FBI and was uh, acquitted of it by by a DC jury. Um, like it seems pretty clear. Like Michael Sussman. Yeah, Michael Sussman. That's yeah. who I was thinking of. I can't remember how long they deliberated in the Sussman trial. I don't think it was oh, very long. It wasn't long. It was it was a day, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It so maybe quickly. this maybe this means they uh, have they have more to chew on when it comes to Danchenko. You Certainly know, they I have wonder, more information. I, I think I probably know the answer to this, but I wonder if this might give somebody in the Justice Department pause if, if he's acquitted. Do they really want to spend another twenty or forty or sixty, whatever it is, million dollars of the taxpayers' money going after these nonsensical? charges <laughs> and then, you know, lose the case in the end. Is this really worth it? I would say no. Uh, yeah. I mean, I they think probably would say yes. Yeah. I also, uh, there was a time story uh, yesterday about uh, rats and garbage. I have oh, to say, yeah. this is about New York. Uh, the city of New York has decided, uh, well, there's a, a proposed rule <laughs> they announced yesterday that residential and commercial trash will not be allowed on the curb before 8 p.m. Right. Uh, So you have between 8 p.m. and midnight to put your trash out on trash day. Wow. And that is precisely to uh, give the rats less time to get into it. Great. (laughs) That's just great. Because rats don't come out at night anyway. Well, they're just trying to, like, condense the time that rats are, you know, running running around the street, being enticed by the sweet, sweet smell of garbage. Yeah. Right. We'll see. You remember Pizza Rat? From a year or two ago? I sure do. Yeah. I saw a guy with a pizza rat tattoo. What? Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's what would possess somebody? I don't know. Some people just like to draw on their skin, you know? Yeah. That's how they do it. Um, what else have we got here? I, I have a conversation that I really am hoping to have tomorrow. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in our relationship with China. Uh, You had Antony Blinken coming out yesterday, I believe, and saying that China is, in in his words, China is accelerating its timeline for retaking (laughs) Taiwan. Yes. It's always planned to, but now they're accelerating it. And, you know, obviously the the U.S. needs to be very concerned. Simultaneously with that happening, this was a, a story in Defense News from yesterday. The headline of the story is lawmakers seek emergency powers for Pentagon's Ukraine war contracting. And the thrust of the story is that there's legislation in the Senate would give the Pentagon wartime procurement powers, which would let it buy massive amounts of high priority munitions using multi-year contracts to help Ukraine Mm -hmm. and to refill U.S. stockpiles. So this is the, the, the first paragraph of the story. This is the headline. However, Um, You get further down in the story and you learn the intent of the legislation is to spur the Pentagon and industry to move more aggressively by removing bureaucratic barriers with an eye not only on Russia, but the potential for a confrontation with China over Taiwan. This is according to a senior congressional aide uh, who spoke to Defense News, says Defense News. but he's saying we, we can't pussyfoot around with minimum sustaining buys of these munitions. It's hard to think of something as high on everybody's list as buying a ton of munitions for the next few years for our operational plans against China. Yeah. And continuing to supply Ukraine. So, you know, I, I think that this is interesting. This is still a, the, the language has not yet become law. 
But certainly this would free up, you know, to put the Pentagon on a war footing um, or to give it wartime powers seems to be a pretty significant change. Yes, I think it is. You know, and they're going to do this under the guise of being able to uh, get munitions to Ukraine more quickly. And maybe that's its, well, I don't know. I was going to say maybe that's its immediate purpose, but I don't even know that we can pull immediate as an adjective away from our, uh, you know, planning with regard to China. Right. And so, yeah. And how would you expect China to react if the U.S. is giving its its defense department wartime powers to prepare for conflict and, with them? And you, you know? know, one of the things that it, it, it seems to be a very simple lesson that we just don't learn is we can't fight two wars at the same time. OK, we tried in Afghanistan and Iraq. We got our butts kicked in both places. Now, imagine one of those wars being against a superpower. Yeah. And the other war being. By proxy, proxy against the superpower. superpower. Yeah, yeah. We can't do this. This is a bad decision. It's a bad policy. It's not going to work. Bad decision and bad policy. This is our, uh, it's yeah. our time to shine. Well, thank goodness that the, that the left-wing party is in power, oh, right? for God's sake. <laughs> yes. All right. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> I'm too disgruntled <laughs> to continue. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.